We're human too, you know. Eyes, teeth, hands, blood. Exactly like you. There really isn't any telling you apart, is there? Absolutely identical in every respect. I've been watching him, tracking him, studying his every every move. I know his every every mannerism, facial tick, gesture. I know him better than he knows himself. And now, after all this time, I finally figured out a way to trap him. I will become him. There's always an alternate. Lily's the best choice. No, but she wants my role. <laughs> Every dancer in the world wants a role. No, this is different. She's after me. She's trying to replace me. Nobody's after you. No, please believe me. Here at the Lucas Clinic, we strive to bring you closer to celebrity than ever before. With samples drawn directly from the source, you can be connected in ways you never imagined. Oh, tell him you know me. You must know me. But this is Mr. Pellet. What do you want with him? I am Pellet. I am Pellet! This is uh, this is my friend Anna. She's she's also an actress. Have I seen you in anything? No, I would be surprised. Man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask, and he'll tell you the truth. Hello, welcome back to Projections Podcast. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Mary. How are you? I'm good. Uh, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I've had quite an eventful week. I got the, my first vaccine. Oh, congrats. That's so exciting. Yeah, I'm very happy. And also, I didn't have any side effects apart from a sore arm. So I'm really, yeah, I oh, feel perfect. very, very relieved. I was worried about having flu symptoms for a couple of days, but it didn't happen at all. So oh, ideal. Yeah. Are you fully vaccinated or half vaccinated? Half vaccinated. Okay. But you'll yeah. have your second one soon. Yeah. 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 Very soon. Um, which one did you get out of interest? I got AstraZeneca. I got Pfizer. Oh, okay. Um, cool. I think I'm, I'm sort of wondering because I went, the clinic I went to was where I used to live in South mm. Woodford. And they, it said a Pfizer clinic on it. So mm-hmm. I guess the clinics have one type. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I wonder if maybe they're like spacing there. I wonder if maybe they're like doing Pfizer in South Woodford and like AstraZeneca in like another borough and they're going to oh. like compare rates and see oh. which one's more effective. Oh, well, if they're not doing that, they really should be. They really should be, right? Like, because <laughs> yeah. like, I've had the same as all my family because like everyone kind of lives quite close. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, like inter- interesting to know to sort of see like yeah yeah ideal it's kind of ideal research uh factors at play exactly and it was so nice like I had mine from a retired like obviously a doctor they brought like brought out of retirement and he Mm -hmm. was like he was like I'm gonna do it now and I was like okay and he was like I've already done it (laughs) because you can't feel it at all (laughs) did he give you a lollipop at the end he didn't I was really hoping for one but I didn't get a lollipop but he was so nice. I would get. He felt like he gave me an emotional lollipop. 
Oh, that's sweet. Of kindness. I so, like that. That's, yeah. a ni- that's really nice bedside manner. So nice. Really nice guy. Like, I, yeah, I hope I get my <laughs> second one as well. He was lovely. Oh, my goodness. Um, so we took a break last last episode. We were talking about violation and um, promising young women. And now we're back to our regularly scheduled program, The Double. Yay! And today's episode is the fourth one in the series, Parallel Realities. Yep. And actually, I wanted to ask you, um, just as a kind of opening question, do you believe it's possible to have parallel realities or parallel universes? Like, is there another Sarah out there somewhere? Ooh. Well, I mean, I think, like, I think... What the tr- the truth really is is because the universe is like infinite. It is supposed to be technically possible that mm-hmm. everything that you can imagine exists. Yeah. So I guess parallel realities would come under that. Yeah. So yeah, I'm definitely wouldn't rule it out. Um, it'd be nice. I hope there are other Sarahs. Like yeah. it would be nice not to be totally alone in the universe. <laughs> someone to be exactly like you, but like exactly like you, but like allergic to seafood or something. <laughs> 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 but like a minor difference yeah exactly what about you yeah I tend to agree with you I think statistically or like or at least theoretically if we if you think of like the Schrodinger's cat experiment you mm. know the cat in the box um, every single time you make a decision you split reality you split the time space continuum and then there's another reality parallel to this one yeah. for every decision that you make so <laughs> oh my god yeah so there's like a hell of a lot of other versions of us out there and I think it's really romantic to think that you know if if I'm kind of regretting a decision or something I can rest assured that in some other (laughs) universe I made the the opposite decision or maybe just a different decision and and um Maybe that's panning out somewhere, you know, and maybe one day I'll collapse with that experience. Yeah, you just never know. Like, I mean, I think I prefer the um, Veronique um, theory that there's other us's, but they're just like around the corner. Oh, (laughs) yeah, yeah. In like Italy (laughs) or some like just some random place. Yeah, Uh, that would be quite nice. That's a little bit more manageable. Yeah. Then, you know, all of reality, all of shared reality having to split because I decided to have coffee instead of tea, you know. So you think that every time you every time you make any form of decision, reality splits again? Yeah. Wow, that's too many. <laughs> yeah, there's like billions and billions of realities. Yeah, no, that's too, that's stressful. That's too many realities. <laughs> but don't you, like, for me, like as a very neurotic person who is very indecisive, I love the idea that, you know, another version of the other option is being lived out somewhere. So that's very reassuring to me because it's like. <laughs> I think maybe there's like a me that like replies to texts and emails faster. And <laughs> like she is just so much further on with her life. I hope that she's, I hope that she's having a good time. <laughs> like, well, I mean, there's definitely a me out there who um, is, is, is a social butterfly. Oh, um, definitely. Um, and God knows what she's doing. Is it that. not just you after like <laughs> a couple of glasses of wine? Oh my God. 
I honestly don't remember because I don't drink alcohol. I don't remember the last time I was drunk. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that is, that, it must be a long time. I'm pretty much teetotal. Since when? Um, uh, I think pretty much since the pandemic. I yeah. think I realized that if I d- ever did have a glass of something uh, or like a shot or something, it was out socially, which was mm-hmm. very rare anyway, because I'm not much of a, you know, going out person anymore. I used to be. Well, I mean, I think more and more people are doing that now. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, I don't know. I was just talking to my friend Millie about it, about like the mm. moment where we realize we're not very good when we drink too much, like mm. where it, which you don't have when you're young, but like suddenly things start to catch up with you and you realize that like alcohol is making you miserable, which maybe is not your experience, but definitely is mm. mine if I drink too much. So, yeah. I think probably in my case, I was always on the verge of being teetotal anyway because I was such a lightweight. Like I could never, I cannot handle a drink. Like I'm, after like one glass, I'm basically drunk, you know? Oh, me too. Definitely. Definitely. So maybe that's why my tolerance was always so low anyway, that it was just like to not have the one drink wasn't such a big leap kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And, um... And so, and, and to be honest, when I did, if I did drink, I was always kind of like, I got a bit giggly, but that's kind of about it. And I like to dance. That's about it. But, um, so I kind of do miss that portion of it. Cause I always had good experiences, you yeah. know, I never like threw up or anything. I never was sick or. I think I kind of treat alcohol the way I treat food. Like I really mm. love food. Mm. I really love nice food. And I also love nice alcohol. So I would never, yes. I don't go into pubs and order alcohol anymore. Like I go into like organic wine bars and order like, a, you know, a 30 pound bottle of wine or I get like one <laughs> martini or yeah. something or like some really nice tequila or, you know, I just really like the experience, the, the experience and the taste and mm-hmm. yeah, getting something really nice and like oh, a treat. So that's how I drink now. And it's much better than drunk text Sarah. Who oh, def- yeah, for sure. I'm no, happy for sure. to leave in a parallel reality. <laughs> No, 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 definitely. <laughs> no, that 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 uh, approach is so nice, actually. I mean, that I do really, I do miss that because P- Paul is a bit of um, a craft beer aficionado, mm. and he knows his stuff. And I do miss tastings. Like we would go to tastings, and it was oh, like that's so nice. It was very civilized. Like I like, I do like that aspect of it. Now I'm just boring. I'm like, I'll have a cup of tea. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not the same. But I have noticed that if the music's yeah. really good, then I will dance whether I'm drunk or not. Yeah. So I still ho- I still think there's dancing in my future, even though I'm not a big drinker anymore. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes without saying. For introverts, dancing is a great option for going out because it means you don't have to talk to anyone. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. You're so right. I never thought about that, but you're completely right. right. It's like, I'll, I'll meet you, but like, don't say anything to me. Like, let's just, <laughs> let's just dance. It's perfect. It's a perfect excuse. It's great. And um, then if you have a mood swing, hot, like at midnight, you can just like wander off to the toilet and lock yourself in. Like... <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Like, or you could always do the good old Irish goodbye, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, you just leave. No one. <laughs> it's true. No one will notice because everyone they do else drinks. Is- everyone else is drinking or if they do notice it's like it's got a certain mystique to it you know definitely like where did sarah go (laughs) (laughs) you're the word on everyone's lips kind of thing 
Yeah, exactly. It's perfect. Um, I don't know how we got onto this. Topic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> parallel. It's a parallel podcast. Yeah, I don't. Sorry, guys. Like, we'll, <laughs> we'll just swap, we'll just swap places with our doppelgangers and get back to work. <laughs> get, get back to the pro- producer's sheet, yeah. which I have in front of me. Um, <laughs> no, I think I think it's fun. It's a hilarious, uh, you know, free association. Mm-hmm. But um, but I mean, I was thinking about because today we're going to be talking about Jordan Peele's film Us, and which was your suggestion actually. That's really like ingenious, I have to say, because I completely forgot about this movie. Well, I just think every time we, I mean, obviously it's hard to program a series. It's very mm-hmm. difficult. Like, um, thank yeah. us for working hard. Yes. Um, <laughs> but every time we do, we always. I feel like there's certain obvious ones that like mm. at the end of pro- you know figuring out what we're going to do I'll always be like oh god that one and oh, um, yeah. so yeah this one just suddenly came into my mind and it was crazy that we didn't talk about yeah. it and then we were really lucky because we had one that we couldn't fit in and so we just added another episode yeah. and like and got to have everything so what got to have everything and we we managed to uh, attach triangle uh in this one so i love triangle so much like me too actually oh this God. series has been really good because i've actually been able to watch a lot of the things that you have told me about years ago uh-huh. and that i never got around to watching and triangle's one of them Oh really? So you hadn't seen it before this 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 um, this research? Mm, I think I watched it like just before we started recording the oh, series, yeah. but we'd already decided to do the double, and we knew that we would probably do triangle. So mm-hmm. and it would just I just happened to see it and watch it, but it had Amazing. been on my list since you told me about it ages ago. Yeah, ages ago. and oh, it was so always good. been one I wanted to watch, and it was great. I don't know why yeah. it's not more famous. I know. I don't understand. Like I don't understand why this film is not on everyone's radar it should be it's magnificent I think it's just because you think it's going to be like a run-of-the-mill lost at sea film <laughs> and it's not no so maybe that's, that's why. true that is true um, oh my gosh because it kind of came out around the time what's that one like donkey punch or something <laughs> like you know it's like there's a there are a few things that were like on boats and like with like obnoxious people yeah and so maybe it's kind of got lost around that time I think sometimes I actually think if there's a if it's a genre my favorite genre of films are like lost in its time oh yeah films because like they're so nice when you can suddenly like something 10 years after it was released that's so true oh my god I love that yeah and actually that's that's so hopeful for for filmmakers who maybe don't necessarily immediately see the success of their film upon release there's like a hope that it will get discovered or rediscovered by cinephiles and then it can have its own kind of timely celebration yeah exactly I think in a way it's kind of better because you I've always thought it's Mm. nice nicer to talk about films further away from the discourse of their release (laughs) I hate to use that word but that uh, I use that word with a sneer because I hate I know I know it's so annoying yes no for sure and especially now I feel like there's a lot of um cynically marketed discourse around (sighs) certain films what the hell was that Shrek thing this week I know what was all that (laughs) like surely like the universe implodes when there's discourse about children's (laughs) film that's the end of discourse oh no it's a kid's film who cares (laughs) Yeah, right on. I don't get it. It's bizarre. Um, and, and I just feel like a lot of the times it's just a trend or a fad. 
Yeah. It's like something just going viral and it's meaningless, but, um, but, but films coming into their own because cinephiles have authentically or organically discovered the beauty of them mm. and they're like recommending them to their friends. Uh, I feel like that is so much better. It's so um, nice. I also really like the way that the TikTok kids uh, discover films and then tell each other about them. And then some like weird horror movie from the early 2000s goes viral. Because they're like, because it's part of their like sick and twisted oh, films hashtag. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so cute. It's really God nice. bless the Zoomers. It's just really nice to see that like they can be shocked and appalled by something too. Yes. Um, it's really nice to see them being like frightened and disgusted by films that also frightened and disgusted us, you know? Yeah, they're not completely desensitized exactly. and like cynical and jaded. It's nice. Nice yeah, thing. <laughs> it's really nice. I'm really hoping that we we see this kind of revival um, for Gareth Tenley's film, The Ghoul. Oh, that is a good one. That is a good shout. Yeah. Maybe, maybe um, you just need to like feed it to a TikToker and... <laughs> People will start talking about it. Oh my God. That's, that could be an amazing, see, that would be the perfect excuse for me to bring back the TikTok app on my phone. Mm. And then if Paul catches me on TikTok, I could say it's for research, it's for like legitimate, like I'm trying to find a TikToker to influence this film. <laughs> I think definitely, definitely. Yeah, I, I need, I need Gareth's film to be like, you know, just huge, massive because it's, it, it deserves it. It's brilliant. Yeah. Um, we'll revisit you, our episode. <laughs> yes, revisit our episode. We interviewed Gareth Tenley, Tenley about the ghoul. So go and check it out. Did you see the news that um, the duo behind Cam are making a new film? No. What's, so what's this? What's this film? They're doing a reboot of Faces of Death. Oh my God. Yeah. Because I, I know they were working on a serial killer film. But apparently yeah. that seems to be stalled in production, but they've been oh. like tapped to helm this project. So that's exciting. Yeah. So we are gonna see work from them at some point in the future. Oh, that's great news. Yeah. Because it's so um, hard to make a second film. Like Yeah. Especially following up after such a great first release. Like that debut is just incredible. Yeah, I know. I know it's uh, it's really one of my favorite films of all time. It's in the top ten. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's just yeah, it's amazing. Actually, I was just um, going to say another one for our radar. Mm -hmm. um, so Ari Aster is shooting this summer in Montreal, my hometown, <gasps> with Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> oh, I can't do any more intakes. Uh, I run out of breath. <laughs> but that's amazing. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's for the, his new horror film, um, which is based on that short. I heard a rumor that his new feature is based on his short bow. Oh, okay. I don't think I've seen that one. I'll have to watch it. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing is, I mean, it's only like six and a half minutes. It's on YouTube. The only um, short film of his I've seen is There's Something About the Johnsons. Is that what it's called? Oh, right. Okay. No, I haven't um, seen that one. Oh, it's like disturbing really yeah you should it's basically and I don't think it's a spoiler because it's like made pretty clear uh -huh. like uh, it's made pretty clear like within the first few minutes but it's about um like abuse in a family but it's the son abusing the dad oh my god it's so it's so unsettling you have to watch it it's just okay I just found it on yeah. YouTube I will watch that I definitely. mean it's amazing but it's like it gave me a bad feeling inside like for oh a few my days god. 
Okay, that sounds incredible. Maybe it's based on this then. I yeah. doubt it's something about the Johnsons because I don't think you could make a feature film about that because it would just be a bummer. Like, oh, it would God. be horrible. <laughs> um, it's like, it's perfect as a short film, but you, I don't think anyone would want to revisit it. So, Okay, you're um, really selling it to me. <laughs> it's really shocking. Like, I, uh, it's more shocking than his feature films. So... Yeah, like it, he's a really he's a dark guy. Like it's like early Lars von Trier or something. It's dark. Are you asked What is the star sign again? Is he a Cancer? Um, yeah, he's a Cancer. Fifteenth of go. July. <laughs> um, so we are going to start off with uh, in this episode talking about Jordan Peele's film Us, and then we'll finish with Triangle. Mm-hmm. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about theory, which I think is attached to both films. Okay, cool. I, I honestly don't remember if we've actually covered the Jungian shadow yet. Have we? Maybe in like the fashion film series. Maybe, yeah. I want to say fashion films. We might have touched on it, but it's okay. Reading is rereading. <laughs> Learning is Reading relearning. Is... <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, the shadow. So I mean, I'm not a Jungian. So to all the Jungians out there, if I've um, misspoken, um, you know, don't come at me. Um, <laughs> You know, you should be happy that I'm I'm taking this on because I'm I'm a faithful follower of Freud. Jungians um, wouldn't do that. Jungians wouldn't do that. They're too peaceful. Yeah, totally. They're, um... they're just they're too busy like doing spells in their bedrooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and pra- practicing sadomasochism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to notice. <laughs> well, there's one out there that stopped mid spank to be like, what? What did she say? <laughs> Um, But I mean, I I just thought that The Shadow was a really good theoretical framework for these two films, because if we're talking about splitting, doubling, if we're talking about, you know, the kind of disintegration of the self that that is often invoked and expressed cinematically, you know, via the trope of the double, then the Jungian shadow is perfect. I mean, um, it's best to kind of differentiate it from the persona, because the persona is the mask or shield. Mm-hmm. that is placed between the self and others. It's our social face that we present to the world, um, designed to impress others, but also to conceal the individual's true authentic nature because that nature could maybe be a little bit unsettling. You know, mm. it, could, it could contain aggressive impulses or sexual impulses, just maybe things that are deemed improper. So the mask of the persona is really kind of actually quite uh, pragmatic, practical to kind of um, conceal some of that Mm. but the shadow is what is being covered up it's sort of the unconscious part of the ego and it is very much disowned or forced out of sight but it's also the seat of a lot of unrealized potential so um, Jungian therapists would be very keen to try and incorporate uh, shadow material into the conscious personality Mm -hmm. um, because I think they, they see that as being really beneficial um, is that what therapists are doing when they talk about shadow work? Yes, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen this being this this term being very um, used frequently now on Instagram. I see a lot of influencers saying like, "I'm doing shadow work." I don't mm. know how this happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's become so prevalent. I hadn't had I didn't realize it was that popular in the mainstream discourse. You're right. But it is. It is. It really is. Right. Mm. Uh, but that is what it, it it is what they mean by it, um, because the thing about shadow um, is that it is prone to psychological pro- projection. 
So a lot of negative traits that we have in ourselves, we might be tempted to perceive them, you know, in other people. Our own personal inferiority is then kind of unconsciously cast onto others to avoid a true confrontation with the self. Um, And what is seen as evil or inferior or unacceptable becomes then part of the shadow. And um, it's the most destructive when it's habitually repressed. What's interesting, I find, especially in Jordan Peele's film, um, is that there's also this kind of archetypal shadow, um, but that is transpersonal, you know? It's it's the kind of accumulation of a lot of those shadow anxieties that is then becomes symbolized in a pure radical evil, mm-hmm. and it's like really projected outwardly, like, you know, these people are bad, or um, this figure who represents this group of people is evil you know, or as a monster, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of horror movies deal with archetypal shadow mm. uh, stuff, you know, like monsters are great archetypal shadow um, symbols. But ultimately, it's a really like a reservoir of human darkness, um, which is kind of interesting, because it is also talked about as the as being the simultaneously the seat of creativity. It's kind of so we're sort of compelled not to continue to reject it and repress it. We have to turn to it. We really have to confront the scary stuff, mm. which, is, which is so much at the heart of a lot of like horror movie appreciation uh, discourse, that word again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I hear a lot of people saying, you know, I turn to horror. I mean, we've said this before. It's sort of totally yeah. a valid thing to say. You know, um, I turn to horror movies to confront my demons, you know. That's well, yeah. really positive work. That's so it's so interesting because pe- people talk there's a lot of discourse at the, I'm going to I'm going to stop <laughs> at the moment about films and safety like we came yeah. we talked about it a bit in the last episode the promising young woman where yeah. you know there should be trigger warnings there should we you know the, all of this kind of thing. Yeah. But like the ironic thing about that is that like <laughs> films are literally a safe space in which to explore dark things like they literally can't hurt you. No. Um, although, if I would love to know if there is a case of someone being hurt by a film, like someone actually going mad because they saw something scary, um, yeah. because that was that's definitely was my fear when I was a teenager that, yeah. that I might see something that's too <laughs> scary and mm. somehow I would die or go mad. So, if anyone knows a story that isn't an urban legend or even one that is, I would love <laughs> to know. But yeah, it yeah. is interesting that like. I, you know, the whole safe space thing, like it could not be safer. It's, it literally yeah. cannot hurt you. So. It cannot hurt you. It's literally fake. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm super skeptical about people claiming that they have been harmed. Um, I'm, I'm like, I'm a true libertarian in the sense of like, when it comes to like free speech and stuff like that, like I'm a big proponent hasten to add that I'm on the like left spectrum of libertarianism I'm mm-hmm. not like I'm not an anarcho-capitalist <laughs> I'm definitely like a socialist libertarian but but my point is that I'm you know I really strongly believe that anything should be shown if it, if it, you know and it should there should be no caveats and there should be no like excuses or warnings or anything because as you say it's not harmful of course like what i'm saying is also um backed up by science there's research has shown that there literally is no relationship between violent video games violent movies and people committing harm 
Mm. Um, if anything, uh, I'm more inclined to believe that consumers of these types of media are actually more prone to maybe work through and process a lot of stuff that would then lead to violence in real life. I agree. I agree. Right? Yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, obviously like everyone's different and they're of course are violent people, but I've, I also, whenever I hear about like serial killers or people like that blaming a video mm. or, a, you know, a film or something, it's always something they've sought out after they've decided to kill to yeah. like find things to like align their thinking with. Yeah. So yeah, I've never actually really heard of a case of like um, a film influencing an act of violence. Not really. No, I've never heard of that. I don't think it's a real thing. Um, I mean, I've definitely been very, very scared, like scared to the extent of nightmares, but yeah, I yeah. wouldn't consider that harm. Like no. I would just consider that interesting, like an interesting <laughs> thing in my brain. Like I don't think it doesn't equate to actual harm. No. no. No, no. Harm would be that the fear exists inside of me and has no outlet yes. to be confronted or, or looked at or examined, that it's just trapped inside me doing untold damage. Mm. Um, harm is not noticing and observing something that is disturbing, yes, but then you can you have an opportunity to gain something from it really valuable. Like, how the hell is that harmful? You know. big pussies. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Um, I mean, that's why I love working with the Freud Museum, because they're so amazing at, like, pushing the boundaries, mm -hmm. because they really follow in the spirit of Sigmund Freud and psychoanalysis, that we have to look at those things that make us uncomfortable, you know? And whenever I think I've crossed the line with my, like, courses or choice of films... Uh, they're like unfazed. They're like the coolest people in the world. <laughs> like, oh, but yeah. Visit the Freud Museum, guys. Now that it, yeah, no, is it open? It is open. Yeah. Absolutely, huge shout out, big shout to the Freud Museum. It is now reopened to the public, and you can book your your visiting slots online, and you have like access to the museum, the wonderful final home of Sigmund Freud, where he lived and worked in his last year and a half. Um, and it contains the original psychoanalytic couch. You can't miss that. Yeah, you, it's definitely London. worth a visit. You have to go at least once. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. But I mean, just going back to the shadow, um, yes. having <laughs> just professed my love to Sigmund Freud, and I'm now like talking about his frenemies theory. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it is, yeah, I mean, the shadow is, is really, I think, really, really important and interesting in film theory, especially because of how like creators, how directors have recourse to it for storytelling. And it's really to helping us to consider and examine the, the dual sidedness of characters mm. and the kind of the doubling that, that does take place. Like I said, in the analytic situation, coming to terms with the shadow and assimilating it into conscious personality is the, is the goal. Mm. In these stories, the characters who are split between the mask or persona that they pre present to the world versus their shadow, the violent potential that they have within them, that can be like a really interesting tension point. So to kind of come to terms with that and trying to assim assimilate and incorporate the shadow into, into the conscious self presents a really interesting challenge cinematically. I mm. think that's exactly what's happening in Jordan Peele's Us. We can start with that one. Yes. Oh, so happy to finally talk about this. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm going to synopsize. Um, Us 20, 2019, I think so. 
Yeah. Yep. Um, in 1986, a young girl called Adelaide wanders away from her parents at the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk and encounters mm. a doppelganger of herself in the House of Mirrors. Years later, with her husband Gabe and children Zora and Jason, Adelaide finds herself on a trip back to Santa Cruz. Experiencing unpleasant memories and anxiety about her childhood experience, Adelaide confides in Gabe and asks to leave. However, they are interrupted by the arrival of a family of doppelgangers in their front yard who invade the house in pursuit of reparations. Mm, perfect. I said I changed revenge to reparations yeah. because it seems more apt in this case. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Is it his second feature film after Get Out? Yeah, second okay, film. Perfect. Excellent, excellent. I love the title, first of all. I mean, uh, I heard him say in an interview that it's really a commentary on the duality of the American dream, mm. the United yeah. States and us. It's great. So did you see this in the, in the cinema originally? I did, yeah. I went yeah. with a, a bunch of work colleagues and I had uh, a McDonald's and a jealousy panic attack on the way home because oh. I was so like, I was just thought it was so great. Yeah. Um, I mean, I loved Get Out and I love, I love, you know, I could watch Get Out anytime. It's one Me of too. those films you could just always return to. But this felt so different. And yeah. I don't know, like in a way there was more to it um there's more going on I don't know like there's always a lot going on in a Jordan Peele film he's like really he's just clearly is he a cancer so he is so he's a Gen Xer Mm -hmm. um 21st of February is that a Pisces oh yeah I guess it is on the cusp well yeah so I don't really know very much about the Pisces Mm. um but he yeah there is he's just like such a meticulous like referencer Yes, he is. Um, so, but I don't know. I don't, um, he doesn't seem like the Pisces I know. Um, <laughs> so interesting. Uh, wow, e- extremely, interesting. extremely sensitive sign. Like very. Extremely. Yes. Um, yes. So, very yeah. sensitive, very perceptive. And, and, but like emotionally, I think emotionally articulate is a good way to describe them. Yeah. Almost like extrasensory. Yeah, a little bit psychic. Yeah. Wow, I love that. That is so true. Paul is a Pisces and he he really is like that. Oh, there you go. Um, I did see this in the cinema as well. And I was taken aback so much by, as you say, the references. Mm. Um, So the whole thing with the the white rabbit was interesting to me. Because at first I thought there's a lot of like white rabbits represented in this like fun house situation. Mm. It's all filmed on is it the Santa Cruz Beach, which is near San Francisco, I believe, in California. Yeah. And when the family go on holiday there, there's obviously a PTSD element or a PTSD response from the mother because she'd had this experience as a child at that very same beach, which has like a funfair environment. Mm-hmm. And then the, the white rabbits are represented right at the, in the opening sequence. And I was always like, is this like a Alice in Wonderland signifier? Mm-hmm. But actually, I was surprised to hear from Jordan Peele in an interview, which he didn't say much about it, but he just said that the white rabbit is actually nothing to do with Alice in Wonderland. It's it's an Easter reference. What? Yeah. He said, think of the white rabbit as inviting you into a horror Easter. Wow. And I, and I was like, oh, my God. And that just like, I mean, I only discovered this a couple of days ago when I was researching the film. And actually, it really made sense to me. I mean, what is Easter? It's a celebration of Christ resurrected. Yeah. 
But here it's the, the resurrection is taking on like a very horrific dimension. Yeah, definitely. Oh my God, that's so interesting. I know. I mean, but it, it's so funny because it was such a red herring, wasn't it? Like you think of White Rabbit, you know, going down kind of like a hole in the ground as it were uh, yeah I just thought of like enforced breeding like oh, yeah. you know or like you know sort of like th- that idea of like poor people having a lot of children sure. <laughs> like negative stereotype that's used to perpetrate crimes on, yeah, on working yeah, class yeah. people um so yeah that's what I thought it was but Easter is so fascinating that's it is. like my mind is like working 100 miles a minute to try and like piece that together but, I know, and me too. Like, I mean, as soon as he said that, and he was very adamant about it, and the little press junket that he did, he was like, "Yeah, you go back and watch. This is a horror Easter." And I was like, "Oh my god!" I mean, talk about an Easter egg. Well, yeah, definitely. That's very good, Mary. Um, <laughs> um, but like, that's interesting because as I was watching it yesterday, I was just like, uh-huh. "Why all this talk of God?" Like, mm-hmm. you know, in her mo- in her monologue, Red's monologue at the end, mm-hmm. you know, she says several times, "Like, I saw." God god that is when i saw god that is when i found my faith right that you know that is when like every they saw i was special like i you know so it's like it's all over the place in a kind of it doesn't even make sense like almost yeah because there's so many mentions of it and it's really kind of it's quite misleading Uh um and it's sort of it's in a film that doesn't appear to be about really you know it doesn't appear to be telling a religious story so I was quite, I was, yeah, really struck by that. And I was trying to figure out what it meant. But uh-huh. there you go. Yeah, but yeah, that's so true. In the context of what he said, it kind of does fall into place. Because if you think that he, the two little girls, you know, the, the T-shirt that's picked up and then kind of like elevated as this symbol, almost like a religious symbol, mm-hmm. you know, hands across America. And then for years, everyone underground is just like, turning to this symbol as something that almost they want to emulate yeah I thought that was fascinating I mean that could almost be their cross the hands across America is their is their symbol you know that they that they gravitate towards or they congregate around and I was thinking why is that like I don't, I don't know if hands across America means anything to you at all if it is on your radar the cultural thing I mean, I vaguely know what it is, Mm. um, but it wasn't, it's not something I remember. I don't know when it happened. I guess 1986. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. But um, so that was like the year before I was born. Of course. Yeah. So you you wouldn't have seen like any kind of anything on TV about it, I guess. Because this is a, this is very strong in my mind. It's really weird because when I was a kid, I remember, I mean, I lived in Canada, but we got like American channels. Right. (laughs) Because we were culturally deprived. (laughs) And so we had to turn to like uh, the Leviathan below the border for cultural satisfaction. And Hands Across America was like massive. It was on every single channel. The commercials were everywhere. I even remember the little, like when I saw it in the movie, the little like commercial for it. That's a real commercial. Um, wow okay and it I just it brought me back to my childhood it's so weird what was it for it was this public fundraising event that yes it was in 1986 May 25th actually mm-hmm. which I think is the day is that the day that we released this episode oh my god <gasps> spooky <laughs> that is so crazy so hang on a minute how many years is has it been 1986 
35 years. 35, there you go. It's, we did it on purpose. <laughs> this is a Hands Across America anniversary special, guys. Yeah. Like, <laughs> anyway, it's just so weird. Spooky. Okay. Um, so anyway, it was a real fundraising event in which approximately 6 million people held hands for 15 minutes in an attempt to form a continuous human chain across the United States. People were donating money. Usually, I think it was about $10 to reserve their place in the line. Wow. And then the proceeds were said to be donated to local charities to fight hunger and homelessness and help people in poverty. So the event actually did raise $30 million, but only $15 million was distributed after deducting operational costs. Oh, God. Very weird thing. But the thing is, I heard Jordan Peele, again, in the same press junket interview, uh, he's very revealing in this interview, I have to say, he's a Gen Xer, so he would have remembered that. It was in his childhood, Mm. you know, the commercials and everything. And he said that this Hands Across America event for him really held the duality of America perfectly, like symbolically perfectly in it. Because he said, if we hold hands, will we really cure homelessness? I mean, are we really going to cure hunger? Maybe it's well intended, but it's not a real solution. You know, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's actually a way of, of not dealing with the problem. It's a very concerted effort of not dealing with the problem. Yeah, that's so, so it's, true. it's basically, I love how he put it. He was basically saying in not so many words, that Hands Across America is the persona, the mask that we present to the world. This lovely gesture, you know, so Mm -hmm. well-intentioned, you know, coming from a good place in our hearts, but actually it's fixing nothing. It's just collecting social points for a good deed, but ultimately doing literally nothing. And the problem is still there. Wow. I wonder what he thinks of the black square on Instagram. I know. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm sh- I, and I don't want to take away anything from people who do those kind of gestures. I'm sure that they do feel strongly about a cause and they want to express it and come in together in solidarity. But Jordan Peele specifically was saying that exact thing is actually harmful because it is merely performative. Mm-hmm. But it, it sells the idea to the masses that they have taken part in something when in fact they have not. They've done nothing. Wow, so, that's interesting. It's so interesting. And when you think about it, this film really reflects that. 2019, it was made and released during the Trump administration Mm -hmm. in that era. And I almost, I'm very tempted to theorize that the red jumpsuits are kind of a stand-in for the red hats, the MAGA hats. Oh, maybe. That's interesting. And are these people underground merely just like the basket of, of deplorables? That's what Hillary Clinton called Trump supporters. Oh, that's so interesting. Because I don't know if they are. Like, yeah. Because, I don't know, the thing that intrigues me so much about this mm. film mm. is that the hero family that we kind of focus on, mm. there's something off about them. Yes. Like, they're, they're sort of, they're extremely focused on things. Like, and like, even there's, I don't know, even like the way that they respond to this like traumatic event of um, like a home invasion and this like widespread chaos Mm. is like they, 
they talk, you know, like the dad just like incessantly like talks about the boat, like, you know, offers them like possessions when they get to that, their friend's house and their friends have all been killed. Their daughter's like, Oh, we can take the car. Can we take the car? Like there's, I don't know. There was like quite a lot of that. Like Uh this family, there's something like troubling about this family. And like, they're slightly less troubling than like their friends and coworkers or like, Mm. but they're still, there's still something about them that is like not quite right in terms of like human interaction or like closeness. And I don't know if that's like, I feel like there's, there's something intentional in that, but I can't quite get to the bottom of it. Um, But yeah, there's something seemingly a little bit strange about them. Like they're, Mm. especially obviously with Lupita Nyong'o's character, Adelaide, like she has this story of kind of like, you know, in the end, the twist at the end mm. is that she is like the the girl from like this underworld, yeah. and that they, you know, she like forcibly swapped places, yeah. and so she's like fighting to retain her like hold on this like above ground world, mm. basically, and it's kind of wow. about like to, she's sort of like the epitome of like individualism. Mm -hmm. um of that thing of idea of um in order to like get the best for yourself you have to like reject all previous iterations of yourself Mm. you know like if you were once poor and now you're rich like you can have nothing to do with yourself as a poor person like you know you have to reject like or you know and it's the way that kind of the elites like keep control on the masses is mm. to like make us think that we're different from people in the same predicament as us. You know, that's why like that's true. You know, white working classes are like upset about immigrants, even mm. though you know it's the same, they're in the same position. So that's kind of like what I'm thought of about it. It seemed like a very like yeah. um yeah, sort of a very work-based or like financial-based statement, I suppose. But I'm I'm not sure. But I mean, I think that does um, tie in a lot, actually, to how I perceive it. Because I saw this purely as the people on the surface maintaining and really like curating their lives in a certain way, as you exactly said, Mm -hmm. you know, very like sort of material centered status centered. Uh, I mean, you, you saw like the Elizabeth Moss character, you know, she talks about having like worked on on her face just to maintain her youth but to me that is the face of the persona affirmation of 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 the mask the social mask that we wear to kind of like secure our own place in this agreement this social agreement of what we're doing on the surface the civilization element really yeah you're right and there are so many they they do have so many signifiers as like a family like the way the dad wears that howard um, shirt like that university shirt yeah. Is like such a thing of, you know, like why would you wear your university sweatshirt as an adult? Like, but a right. lot of people do. Um, exactly. And it's just exactly. like a way to signal to other people, like, what your place in the world is. Right. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. And so much is made of wanting to, to be a certain way, like wanting to be proper. Mm. Um, I, I was kind of also reminded of when they're like, as a family in the car, they're listening to I Got Five on it. Yeah. And I love, I mean, that song is great. And it's great that Jordan Peele um, sampled it. Oh, it's amazing because it's so frightening, actually. That it song. is. <laughs> like, it's got a really, like, sinister, um, like, hook to it. Yeah, it does. 
But then what's interesting is that, you know, obviously the parents are like kicking it old school and stuff and they're playing this track from the, back in the day. But one of the kids says, oh, it's about drugs. Mm. <laughs> so it's funny that like the kid notices something at the core of this song, but that is immediately disavowed, you know? Yeah. Like, do you remember? Like the parents are like, no, drugs are bad. Don't do drugs. You know, so it's like um, right away it's suppressed. It kind of sets the tone a little bit for the film where something is presented that is collectively deemed to be acceptable in society. But then there's this ambivalent thing where at the center of it, it like it's uncanny. It kind of still has this little weird thing at the center that's like provoking. Mm. But that has to be disavowed. And I'd completely read this film as like purely a political film because in the kind of political landscape, I mean, literally in this case, there's an accepted ideology on the surface that mm -hmm. is kind of manufacturing consent for certain values that are centered around neoliberalism and a certain definition of the nation state and militarism and et cetera, et cetera. We would like to say that we're all collectively turning to this way of life, but there's actually like an underlying dimension that we don't want to acknowledge people that defiantly think differently to us and they're there they're like lurking in the woodwork you know? oh my god that's an amazing reading I totally understand what you mean now yes you know what I mean that's so good that's why the deplorables uh kind of term really actually really fired up Trump's base like that's Hillary Clinton saying that that's one of the biggest boosts she gave to his base ever. He couldn't have bought better publicity, activating that shadow element, yeah. the, the politically disaffected, the dispossessed, you know, that we don't want to think about. They have really like weird ideas and there, there's racism and there's like maybe sexism or whatever. You know, there's a lot of uh, opposition in the kind of social uh, and cultural realm of what's, uh, what's allowed especially around identity characteristics, like especially around immutable identity features. But what's hilarious about it is that this opposition in the end, it doesn't really even matter because no matter who gets power, we're all still in the same neoliberal boat. God, that's so interesting. It also like <laughs> implies that the more you have and the more you kind of advance in life according to like neoliberal, like mm. um, sort of marker points that like in life... Like the more vested interest there is in like pushing down your shadow. Yes. <laughs> um, like, and not only that you push down your own, but that like, as we all become like a public, as we all become people with a public persona, we jump on other people to suppress theirs too. Yeah. Like, so when someone like says something wrong, like that is maybe like a Freudian slip or like, mm -hmm. a, you know, like we like beat them down and like expel yeah. them from our group yeah um yeah that's so interesting exactly that's why I've always maintained that cancel culture is ineffectual in if, if we want to have accountability it's completely ineffectual mm -hmm. because all it's doing is creating a chilling effect in culture of suppressing certain signifiers that are no longer allowed to be articulated. That's yeah. it. It's just teaching people what not to say publicly. It's just fine-tuning the social mask and persona. But it's not resolving the crisis of the shadow. Mm, it would just force people underground where there are like mil yeah. millions of them to meet up with. So. Yeah, it just forces people onto like 8chan. 
Yeah. You know, um, that's it. Like it literally does not hold anyone in power accountable. Um, it is a very weird and warped way of resolving uh, material problems that we face. Um, yeah, I really believe that it, this movie is a great, like, it's one of the great topographical films yeah. where we can like actually see side by side, like the surface and the underlying like shadow stuff working because they're like in tandem. Mm, that's so interesting. That's such a great reading. Oh, thank you. Mm, yeah, yeah. I love it. I mean, but that's why the hands across America thing is perfect because it's like, because even like the people in underground, like they've been worshiping this uh, promised land where everyone is holding hands on the surface. Yeah. And they can like rise above their homelessness and their poverty and their hunger, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, nothing materially is resolved. Like they've just worshiped this kind of, let's say, ideology for so many years underground. But when they finally have freedom and they can finally come out of like the basement. They've just got this empty gesture. They've just got a performative empty gesture and nothing else. Nothing is actually healed or processed. It's a, it's a, it's a real indictment <laughs> of, of Hands Across America, <laughs> I have to say. But I mean, it's, it's great because the film really captures the, all the tensions and varying degrees of like opposition in what is supposed to be the United States. I mean, if you even think of that country's name is really interesting to me, the United States. Mm. I mean, that could be applied individually. Yeah. The United States is only healthy if we integrate all the darker impulses into it and we try and work through those problems. It is not healthy if we just present a happy-go-lucky picture of people holding hands. Mm. that's bullshit that's that's the way of the ego and it's a pr stunt that's all it is you know it's just good optics so does adelaide represent like a person who can like survive in these like upper echelons of like liberal persona Mm. but whilst like simultaneously harboring unacceptable views like which you would kind of expect which is true in like left you know in left-wing society Mm. like there are loads of people that like will do all of the same terrible things as like a right-wing tyrant but like with an acceptable face of liberalism but like doing Mm. performing the same political decisions Oh, yeah, for sure. So it's like yeah. maybe that's kind of what she represents because she's in a way she's sort of like the most unified person in the film yeah. because she has like, yeah, she has like the ability to survive in this as this persona, yes. but whilst like having this in this shadowy interior. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. In a way, she's the most authentic person. Yeah, because she's had, you know, even though she's completely flawed and she's not a perfect character in any, you know, I don't think that Jordan Peele intended her to be. No, uh, at all. It's just that she's the most complex, willing to admit her own crisis. Yeah. Whereas the other people, I feel like they're all just automatons. It's weird. There is like a weirdness to everyone in (laughs) in the film. Like no one's. Yeah, I don't know. Apart from her, her and the little boy Jason, yeah, are like yeah, he's also because he's got this mask all the time. So he seems to be like as a child, very aware of uh-huh. like the persona 
Yeah. Like in a way, he's like kind of mimicking everyone else by putting this mask on all the time. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And that's exactly what we do in a society where, you know, we, 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 we scan situations for um, clues and hints about how we need to act so that we can follow suit. Yeah. So that we, we don't then get ostracized or expelled from civilization. Yeah. And there's something about him that he hasn't quite learned to suppress his like yes. stranger tendencies because he is a little bit, you know, he's a little bit strange. Like, mm. you know, he's interested in like magic tricks and he's like not very social well, he doesn't have the wherewithal to have a like a real persona. He just yeah. has this like mask substitute. Yeah, he's, exactly. He's so interesting, actually, as a character. You could do a little like mini video essay just on him. I know. Yeah, he's really interesting. Mm. I mean, actually, I was thinking that. Well, I was thinking while you were speaking about Adelaide and her status, her in a way, her dual nature. Mm-hmm. You know, and. It, it made me think that maybe she's like the Christ figure in this uh, Easter horror. Yeah. Because she is the one who kind of resurrects her shadow side. Yeah, that's true. She, I mean, in the, only in the figurative sense of like, um, like she kills her persona, the inauthentic side, mm-hmm. the mask, the social mask, and she reawakens inside herself those impulses towards darkness and like integrates them in her real conscious personality. Yeah. She sort of accepts herself. Maybe that's the Easter component of this film that we find something dark and bring it back to life inside ourselves. Maybe that's what the Jungian analyst is trying to coach us to do in the sessions, mm-hmm. integrate the shadow. Uh, only then are there real possibilities for growth. If you're saying that you've, you know, you've checked all the kind of like, socially proper boxes then there's no work really for you to do well is- i mean we're seeing that actually in more in uk politics than um yeah. us politics at the moment because there's total status there's nowhere to go like there's this this like socially acceptable persona and then this like shadowy other side <laughs> and no one will budge so yeah. like you can't move until you kind of incorporate like some of those traits into the other side basically. yeah it's a total deadlock deadlock that's it that's the word I was searching for yeah and and that's very fr- that's a very frustrating place to live mm. but but you know Jung would argue that a lot of people probably just spend their whole lives in that stalemate state you know um because he said that there's a very serious danger of too many people over identifying with their masks mm. And they just believe that that's all they are. Like their performance is who they are. That's it. There's no other component. And he, he, he came up with this wonderful world, word, actually, um, enantiodromia. Um, someone should make a film called enantiodromia. That's a lovely word. I know. It's wonderful. It's the, it's, 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 it re- uh, refers to the emergence of repressed individuality from beneath the persona and usually occurs later in life. Mm. So it's like something rep- something terrible that you've like, you know, relegated to the shadow realm that you never want to look at actually is like worked through and healed. You know, that repression is healed and it's allowed to kind of come into yourself, into your persona. And he said, this is the answer to the danger of the individual, of the individual being completely smothered under the empty persona 
of, of their social self. Mm-hmm. This is the real answer. That's um, interesting. And I, that is definitely I think, how I feel about aging. Me too, definitely. Like when I look back as, at how I used to be when I was in my 20s, I, I'm like terrified. I'm, I, I look on in horror mm, because there's things I did not know. Um, I mean, things that I did not know, not through my own fault. You know, it wasn't my fault, but I lacked the experience and I didn't actually know what I was doing. Mm. And I, I, I just don't understand the impulse to like fetishize youth and go back to that state. Oh my God. I know. What is that? It's so strange. It's so yeah. strange. Yeah, the uh, the fetishization of youth is bonkers in that respect. I suppose it's just the aesthetics of youth that we fetishize, yeah. not the not the mental state. Yeah, I assume. I don't know. I think it's a, um, you know, I don't always want to make everything about gender, but I think it's a patriarchy driven sure. thing. Sure. Um, yeah, definitely. And I, but I also wonder whether it is, um, is it really just a metric of our society that it doesn't even occur to us to take on board and factor in? the experiential things we've learned, like those things don't even get a look in. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, that maybe that's like a measure of, of how desperate things are currently, that the wisdom of like growing older and learning things is not even something valued at all. Like it's, it doesn't even get considered. We only think about the surface appearance. Like maybe this fixation on the surface is really nothing to do with like beauty standards or attractiveness. Maybe it's really just a defense mechanism that we want to be so wedded to the persona, to mm. the social mask. And be, because the shadow is just way too threatening. It's just way too dangerous. That's what I was going to say. I think it's, yeah? it's more than not valuable. I think it's threatening to have experience. It's threatening. Yes. Yeah, that's well put. Yeah. Um, it's, it's threatening to have experience. It's threatening. Like the way that we are turning on previous generations in this society it's like why would we like discount the views of someone who's almost undoubtedly lived through these moments before yeah like nothing but being threatened I think so I don't know it's interesting it is interesting I mean the only ever time I curse boomers (laughs) is when I refer to myself as a boomer for not knowing something about technology but then, uh, but I say that kind of affectionately. Um, yeah. Also, I don't have a problem you, with boomers. Can you imagine? I'm, I'm Gen Xer, so it doesn't matter. That's true. You're Gen Xer. No one ever like refers to you. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm the forgotten generation. The forgotten generation. generation. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, me. can you, maybe there's like envy in that because can you imagine the freedom mm. of not being dependent on technology? Yeah, exactly. Like, there is envy. Lovely. Just not to, not to be addicted to Instagram or like, you know. <laughs> Um, like or constantly yes. online like in this yes. kind of strange virtual prison <laughs> <laughs> so actually when I, when I call myself a boomer I'm really like I'm really actually envious yeah you're of, like I like, went outside today like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was IRL yeah today. you were <laughs> um <laughs> that's so funny yes exactly Definitely. um 
Shall we move on to triangle? Let's do it. Okay. Okay. Um, so, Jess, the overworked and exhausted mother of an autistic son, accepts an invitation to spend the day on a boat trip with her friend Greg. Uh-huh. Also on the trip are teen Victor, Greg's married friends Sally and Downey, and Sally's friend Heather. Without warning, a storm engulfs the boat, Heather is swept away, and the others are forced to climb onto the overturned boat to wait for rescue. Almost immediately, an ocean liner passes, but when the group climb aboard, it appears to be deserted, and Jess begins to experience strange incidences of deja vu. Yeah, excellent. Mm. Starring the amazing Melissa George. Yeah, is she in things like before this? Who is she? Yes. So <laughs> she was Camilla Rhodes in Mulholland Drive. Oh my god. I knew I recognized her and I couldn't place her. I didn't IMDB her or anything. Mm. Wow. Of course. Amazing. She, is. she this woman is like, I feel she she should be a household name. She should. Like because she was also the main character in the first season, I think the first and second series of In Treatment. Right. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, so she's like figures largely in my mind because of that as well. Incredible performance. I mean, watch it really just for her, I would say. Okay. She's the like standout person from In Treatment. But again, like she's just another one of these Australian like mavericks. I mean, we were talking before we started recording. What is it about Australian actors? Like, why are they all so talented? What's going on? I mean, it's not just the actors, it's the directors, like the films that have come out of Australia are just like they're amazing. Australia and New Zealand, but like Australia particularly. I mean, like I was thinking that it was, well, for people that were lucky at the beginning of lockdown and had like Mm. money coming in, like me, Mm. I was very lucky. But like I found it quite a creative time because I wasn't spending anything. I had enough money to live on. And I like my mind wandered a lot more. And Mm. I wonder if it's the standard of living. In Australia, you know, the wages are high, like the standard of living is really good, like there's employment for everyone. And so if you're not worrying or like constantly hustling, maybe you have like time for creativity. But then it's also, it's not like an idyll, it's not like a perfect universe, they've got loads of trauma. Yes, um, they do. They have like, you know, all of their colonial trauma. They have all like all of those serial killers <laughs> that are like in the outback being terrifying. Um, so yeah, it's that combination of like... It was a former penal colony. Exactly. <laughs> they've got like sort of, they've got, you know, yeah, they've got like trauma plus like leisure time. And that is, that makes an artist. That <laughs> is the perfect combination. That is the formula everyone's been searching for. Exactly. And you just like distilled it perfectly yeah i'm gonna write that down trauma plus leisure time (laughs) yes i mean that is like perfect it actually is all what you just said uh aligns perfectly with um david lynch's book catching the big fish oh really this is a great book by the way i highly recommend it to like all creative types out there whatever industry you're working in because he literally just spells out how to set up your life to work creatively and he, a lot of the times in the book, he argues that anxiety and like problems and like, oh, you know, the burden of life is the, is the, the worst enemy of, of, of artistry, mm-hmm. you know, and you have to have like this space that you go to where you're at peace. And for him, he found that through meditation. Oh but yeah. He's a big proponent of what is that tra- thing? Transcendental meditation, yeah. TM. 
but I mean, that you can take whatever form, of course. And if, if leisure is a way of like finding that relaxation and inner peace, then like that's perfect, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's um, Catching the Big Fish. Highly recommend. I was, I love what you, what you've said about the Australian culture being the kind of like perfect, <laughs> like playing out of creativity. Yeah. Christopher Smith, the director is not himself Australian. He's British, mm-hmm. but the film was, um, the film is the, depicting the coast of Florida near the Bermuda triangle, hence the name of the film. Yeah. But in fact, it was filmed in uh, the Gold Coast on us in Australia. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. Christopher uh, Smith, by the way, is a cancer. Well, I've been saying cancer, cancer, cancer about people that aren't. So yeah, now I'm now I'm happy. So, finally, we got an actual, finally we got a cancer. Yeah, a bona fide cancer, another Gen Xer. But it was sad to see that this movie didn't recoup its production costs. Very I can't sad. believe it. I mean, I wonder if it has now through streaming. Maybe through streaming. Yeah, maybe through like uh, physical media sales and streaming. Yeah. Hopefully. I'm vouching for this film. We, I, you know, if anything, I, if this episode does anything at all, I hope it like boosts interest in Triangle because this film is mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. I'm so glad that I finally got to watch it. Um, and then watch it again. It's really, I, yeah, let's def- just yeah. go and watch Triangle if you do anything this week. Go and watch Triangle and help it recoup its production costs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's have like a hands across America yeah, campaign hand- for Triangle. <laughs> let's form hands together in a triangle. Like- <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about this movie that really freaked me out, because when I, I don't know about you, Sarah, but I went in not knowing anything about it, which is the best way, in a way, to watch it. Me too. So... Those of you who haven't seen it, just press pause, go watch it and come back. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I had no idea what was going on. I had no clue what I was watching until the last scene, pretty much. Yeah. Um, and what I ultimately find with this movie is, yes, I, I think it is another like kind of representation of shadow work but in a completely different way. It's another great topographical film, actually. Okay. But in a very, I think in a very different way to, to us, um, in that it's not really showing you a surface level pitted against an underlying layer simultaneously. It's just showing you kind of this, almost like a Groundhog Day situation, mm-hmm. where it's a circular narrative. It's going around in circles, and we... Every time there's a new iteration of the same day, like the past is not erased, this ocean liner is collecting evidence of the past. And mm-hmm. we, we see clues that, that the person, the character Jess, played by Melissa George, she's been here before. Mm-hmm. It's just accumulating. Like it's, it's, it's this weird thing of, imagine like, you know, I always thought of like the repetition compulsion, right? People stuck in like a negative life pattern in their world and compelled to repeat their past or make the same mistakes over and over again. Mm-hmm. Imagine what that would look like if you did keep doing that, but every time you came back to, let's say, square one, you saw physical evidence of you haven't been there before. So like all of your ex-boyfriends live in your house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all your ex-boyfriends live in your house or 
um, you know, you find their objects around, you know, like there's this pile of like evidence. Oh or, my God. Yeah. You're totally right. That is what it is. That is what this film is. I mean, it is the repetition compulsion, but I would say um, boosted by this character not seeing the effects of her own shadow, like really disavowing her shadow. But the more she represses it, the more the, the more it just propels her more into this kind of circular Groundhog Day situation where she keeps repeating the same mistakes. Hmm. What did you think of it? Because I have a theory about what this is really about. So I was just kind of struck by the Greek mythology mm. aspects to it because the that Sisyphean myth of someone like having to do like in hell or purgatory, having to do the same like repetitive task over and over again. Yeah. Um, So it's like kind of, and obviously like we kind of learn that this is like a kind of form of punishment for her or -hmm. like self, maybe like self propagated, like self perpetuated punishment Mm -hmm. to have to like live in this place. Someone messaged us on, I think Instagram when yeah. we announced this film and said, it's all about the taxi driver. It's all about the taxi driver. <laughs> I can't remember. It's someone called Anton, maybe. Okay. Um, and uh, so I was like, oh, okay. So like, so, and I was like, I don't think it is all about the taxi driver, but um, so I guess like the taxi driver is that kind of like mythical, that like guide um, yes. that is supposed to like guide you like, uh, like through the underworld or like onto the next stage. Mm. or something because he's kind of there to like uh sort of take her back to the beginning mm-hmm. um but yeah I mean I'd like I thought it was amazing yeah um totally unexpected and again like I didn't really get the all of those Greek things until the second time around mm. um so those were really my only clues to what was going on there yeah for sure I mean the whole taxi driver thing I just interpreted that as just a driver like what drives her Mm. her own drive to repeat the same thing again oh that's great it seems like if you watch the film a few times I mean it took me a few times to watch it to really understand that there's several iterations of Jess on this boat yeah I so I started to notice that the second time and I was just like I'm just going to give up trying to keep track of which Jess is which yes um because it's very confusing like there's more than I thought There's more. There's definitely, I think there's at least three at any given moment. There's at least three and at different levels, but we're always following one Jess, the first Jess who arrives on the ocean liner. Mm -hmm. So in a way we're kind of inducted into the storyline through the eyes of the person who does not know. So we get to discover along with her. Mm -hmm. I think it's really a metaphor showcasing the agonizing cycle of abuse from the vantage point of a perpetrator who sees herself causing harm, who sees herself inflicting harm, but is compelled to re- to repeat the pattern again, despite herself. Oh, so, that's you know, interesting. So you know when at the beginning we see like, um, there's like scenes of her with her son who happens to be autistic. Mm-hmm. But then we, later we discover that in fact, Jess was very abusive towards him. Yeah. Like she yells at him, she makes him feel bad. There's a lot of mistreatment going on. And, and she hits him. I think, and she hits him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. She hits him. And he's very scared of her. Like he lives in fear of her. And towards that kind of final sequence, Jess says to her son that, you know, that lady that do- did those things to you, that was not your mommy. You know, that she's gone. 
I'm the real, I'm your real mommy. I'll never do that to you. That's never going to happen to you again. That sounds like the language of an abuser. Yeah. That sounds like the language of someone who continues to repeat the pattern of abuse, but then after they hit or yell or whatever it is they're doing, gaslighting, all the kind of features of abuse, after they do it, they feel bad momentarily. And they say, look, that wasn't me, you know. I didn't mean to do that to you. That's not who I am. Mm-hmm. And this film is literally like stripping those uh, aspects away. You know, like it's literally creating a situation like, oh, what if, what if, what if you really were someone else, actually physically separating, separating from yourself, and then looking on as you're inevitably committing violence again and committing harm. Because when she's on the ocean liner. Jess sees herself throwing someone off board. Yeah. And she's horrified. You know, Jess sees herself shooting people and she's horrified. So I feel like the film just creates a perfect little like thought experiment where she is kind of like taking this objective view of herself and lives in horror of what she's actually capable of. That's the shadow. That's amazing. Yeah, you're completely right. That is what this film is. Because there's so many, you know, like when she, um, when she even encounters people on the boat and people are like, you shot him, you know, you bitch, how could you do that? You know, you're, you're a schizo. Someone calls her a schizo Mm -hmm. and she keeps denying. She's like, no, I didn't. It wasn't me. I swear it wasn't me, but it was actually her. Yeah. It was just the her that she had not integrated into herself. She didn't want to admit that she's capable of wrongdoing. But because of the way the film starts out, we identify with Jess because we haven't seen her doing anything wrong. We haven't encountered her different like doppelgangers on the ocean liner. So we believe her. We believe her when she says, I couldn't, I I didn't do it. I swear it wasn't me. That's so interesting. So from the point of view of an abuser, like the, everything they do is just like a series of like fateful, like things that happen to them. Yes. From the point of view of an abuser, there's this doppelganger running around doing things and it wasn't their fault. Mm-hmm. They can't take responsibility for this similar looking person who's out there committing atrocities. In fact, they won't take responsibility for that. And they're going to prove it because I, here I am. I'm, the, I'm my real self again. I'll never do that to you again. But they do. Oh, God, that's so dark. It's, it's so such hard. a dark film. It's such a dark film. Like, you know, when that lady is wounded and she's like crawling upstairs yeah and we see like dozens of iterations of her she's been here before multiple times and she's like finally laying out on the boat and like dying and then Jess comes to her and she's like I didn't do this to you I swear I'm gonna help you I'm gonna get us off this ship and she's like please don't hurt me and she's like I wouldn't hurt you I'm trying to help you like and there's all this evidence like piled up of what she's done to her, not just once, multiple times. Mm-hmm. It like gives me the chills. It totally I, gives me the chills now that you said that. That's horrible. Oh, it's horrible. Like imagine being in that mindset of like being the perpetrator of abuse and maybe waking up every day hopeful that you're going to be a different person. Well, it know? really must be like living in a horror movie to be an abuser. Yeah. Because, like, at least if you're someone who's abused, you know, you can take, you, this isn't to do with you as much yeah. as it, you're, like, you're the object. 
yeah. but you're not you know it's not really about you yeah. so you can distance yourself from it like mentally um yeah. but god being an abuser like and being having all of those things like racking up yeah um it just must be it must just drive you mad eventually yeah i mean truly believing that they can change the pattern of what happened Mm. but then always finding themselves again watching themselves injure and harm it's just like another you know another person it's just yeah that is a nightmare that's a nightmare mentality and and the fact that this ocean liner doesn't lie you know it just continues to record and document her previous actions you know, um, not, I mean, not just providing evidence of the compulsion to repeat, but really tracing the evolution of her abusive impulses. None of that goes away. That's the worst kind of hell to live in for an abuser because they can't remove all of those bodies, you know, like there's just too many. They can't remove all the pain. It's just, it's accumulated. Do you know what? This reminds me of a funny story. Mm. Um, is it okay if I free associate? Because it's like Please not totally... Do. I just feel like it's relevant. And if it's not relevant, then you can edit, edit it out. That's but fine. Please. recently I've been speaking to a friend um, and we've been talking about, um, uh, she's sort of like, uh, she has a, a boyfriend that she like very much likes. He has a little bit of a shaky past okay. that is causing her doubts, but um, she's like trying to, she's sort of, she's essentially just trying to kind of figure out if he's good for her or not. Um, he's very nice. I'm not. And I'm not sure of the, quite the answer. And she mentioned to me that he did something the other day, which was um, to go out to do something. He was, left his keys somewhere, like where he was going to go and pick them up. Um, he was like, "I'll be in an hour." And she was like, "Really? Do you have to go? It's eleven o'clock at night." And he's like, "No, you know, I'll be really quick." And then she went to sleep. And then when she woke up, it was like two or three in the morning, and he still wasn't home. And okay. he'd so he like got sidetracked and had a drink and got you know gone out and not texted her. And so we were talking about this and I was saying like, this is like actually a trope that lots of people in relationships do to each other. Um, but no one ever really talks about it, but it is a thing because I've know enough people who have said they did this thing where they went, they said they were going to be home at a certain time. And then I woke up and they weren't there and I became enraged and I couldn't sleep. Um, wow. and so I, and, and, um, so I was like, right. I just, I wrote it down because I was like, I really want to write down this thing because this is something that a lot of people I know have experienced I don't know if you've ever experienced it um but it's something it's it is like a relationship crime that is committed but because there's not like a a name for it like you know like ghosting or or, you know gaslighting or something like that because there's not a name for it it's not really recognized as like a nasty uh, like a, a yeah like a re- I would call it a relationship crime I wouldn't necessarily call it an abusive oh. thing but I would call it like a relationship crime something that is uh that <laughs> I, I believe should be punishable because because what it essentially is is kind yeah. of sleep deprivation because yeah. you know the, there's no reason that you wouldn't get in touch and say oh like I've changed my plans and it causes people not to be able to sleep either they wake up <gasps> and they Either they wake up and they're worried or they wait for you and wait for you and wait for you and they can't sleep. And the anxiety and the anger like gets to you and makes you and just stops you sleeping. And if it's someone that serially does that, then it's essentially someone that is serially depriving you of sleep and that's torture. So it is actually a really bad thing. (laughs) Anyway, but so I know about this because I had a boyfriend that used to do this Mm. to me on a regular basis. 
like mm. once every couple of weeks. And we didn't live together, but he had a key to my flat. And mm. so he could always let himself in. And so he would say he was coming, he, you know, I'm going to go out, but I'm not going to stay out late. I'll come and sleep with you and then we'll do something tomorrow. And then I would like expect him and expect him. I would know that he could get into my flat. So it would be wow. like a sort of, it, you know, like I would always be ex- like sleeping lightly, expecting someone mm-hmm. to come in. And then he sure. wouldn't, He, I would get so livid. And yeah. it, and I remember my friend at the time telling me that it used to happen to her mum. Her dad, like she used to, as a child, she used to feel her mum's rage because her dad hadn't come home. And she knew, like, she knew exactly what had happened. And it just used to permeate the house. Anyway, and that friend once said to me, you should move bedrooms and put a skeleton in your bed. And (gasps) like, (laughs) like she was like, you should buy a joke skeleton and put it in your bed. And so it would be like, you died waiting for him. And at the time I like laughed and I never thought about it. But something about this conversation is reminding me because I wonder if I had done that, would that have been enough of like a psychic shock to make him never do that again? wow because that like I because like what she was really saying is like this is a this is a bad thing he's doing but there's no the only evidence is you living and that's not evidence yeah like you need something you need a body (laughs) like is what she was saying you need a body in the bed that's exactly the same it is is okay I thought it was related but I was just it's so funny because I was just writing about it yesterday just like trying to turn it over and over in my mind and then (laughs) It was, but like, I now I think back to that. I'm just like, why didn't I do that? Because like, it's a real, that was, it's a real statement of like, you've committed a crime and here is the evidence. Like yeah. there is a, like literally a dead body because of you doing this. Like, there's a material, at- there's a material consequence. Exactly. Not exactly. just an emotional, you know, I mean, of course the emotional component is extremely important, but because it's like, it's, it feels immaterial because it's in like an abstract thing. Exactly. And it was because it was so regular. Oh, like I was always, oh, I, I was, you know, he was very unpleasant in other ways too. So like I was all, I cried every day. I was always angry. I was always having a panic attack. I was just a mess yeah. because that's, so like, no, there was no beginning or end to my anger because it was constant. Yeah. But so like, this would have been a really amazing, yeah, like yeah. you said, a material <laughs> consequence of this. Yeah. He, 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 he deserved that at the very least. At I the, mean, I would have, um, you know, uh, <laughs> I would have put on my crystal, uh, what are those things called? Um, knuckle things. The knuckle dusters? Knuckle dusters. (laughs) (laughs) It's my dream to own a knuckle duster that has like crystals, like really sharp crystals. And then I can like really injure someone and say, you know, your chakras needed realigning. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Oh my God, you should write that down and use that in something. Like that needs to go in a film or something. (laughs) Promise me you'll write that down and like stick it on your wall. And so use it because that's really, really good. Well, that's what he deserved <laughs> yeah, uh, at the very least. No, but that's brilliant. Yeah, that would have been that would have been a prank he wouldn't have, you know, forgotten easily because yeah. <laughs> it's actually quite funny. It's really funny. It's a really good idea. Like it was a good joke, but like I don't know if she knew what that what she was wow. saying was actually so much deeper. That's like, incredible. She was just giving me the wherewithal to like. Yeah. Ex, you know to really express something that, sure. that was inexpressible 
Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, and maybe, I mean, I can't speculate. You've never met this person. I can only imagine that, you know, keeping someone like that kind of on tenterhooks um, might have been part of their pathology for like being, I don't know, being wanted. I can't imagine what it is that they felt they needed mm. by telling someone they were going to come over, having a copy of the key. And then yeah. that person is just on edge the whole time. Every little sound in the flat, you're like, is that that person or is it an intruder? Like what's going on? Yeah, it was, it really oh, wasn't. how fucked up. Man. I mean, I have to say like, I'm going to take accountability for it. It was our shared pathology. Like, right. you know, I was participating in it too. So um, like, so I guess I wanted the experience of being on tenterhooks as much as he needed. Like, sure. you know, sometimes you meet someone sure. and you're everything that's wrong with you align and you yes. like play out this psychodrama <laughs> of pain until all been there. <laughs> until you cannot, until neither of you can take it anymore. So I yep. do think like there's always, I mean, obviously like office, uh, like obviously when someone is an abuser, the other person is abused. It's not their fault, yeah. but I think there's always yeah, two sure. sides to a relationship unless someone's a child. You know, yeah, like if you're yeah. two adults in an abusive situation, then like I think that, there's, oh, yeah, a, you know, there's something that led you there, even if it's like the need to play out something again and again until absolutely you no longer can, you know? Oh, for sure. 100%. And I think this actually um, tracks with a lot of the things you've been saying here today, like with the impulse to play out something from the shadow, which we haven't really confronted. Mm -hmm. And then these kind of human experiences or relationships provide like a platform for those things to kind of like be staged actually they do and then there are all of these weird symbols that if you took the time to notice them like the skeleton yeah. like if I'd oh. thought about that at the time like oh. I would have maybe left that relationship sooner because that's a really powerful yeah. image um so yeah, yeah it is so like people, they must like as much where in that film in Triangle, there are all of these yeah. like signifiers of what's going on. Like yes. they're actually, I think in life, the evidence is there. Like sometimes it's just like imagery in people's conversation as opposed to like real things that you can see. But oh, it was definitely. no accident that that imagery presented itself. Oh yeah, that, mm -hmm. there was a meaning behind it. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating because um, when they're on the ocean liner, one of the people in the group actually talks about, you know, makes the connection with Sisyphus and says, you know, summarizes a little bit of the Sisyphus tale. Yeah, it's Sally. It's Sally, exactly. Who so is like, who is impossible to gaslight. Um, yes. Like she rejects like the narrative of like, she rejects Jess's narrative. She's like, Completely. you shot him, you're hurting me. Like yeah. she's like the one that's got like kind of higher awareness and she doesn't yeah. like her. No, from she the start, like her. which at first, like you know, you think that Sally is like this horrible person because yeah. she's like, and maybe it's like a class thing, mm. like, but it's it's actually not like Sally's not. got like a good grasp on who she is more than anyone else has. But not enough has been said yet about because Sisyphus is the son of Aeolus, who's mm. that's the name on the on the ocean liner. Yes. Uh, did you look up Aeolus? Because I did. I did. He like creates thunderstorms. He keeps these violent storm winds locked safely away inside the cavernous interior of his island and releases them only at the command of the greatest gods. Interesting. So he's performing controlled explosions, which yes. um, maybe is also what you would do in therapy. 
like, if you were clever enough. Yeah. Like, like, Controlled detonation. Yeah, like letting out a little bit at a time. Um, oh, my God. So that you don't cause damage. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, mind officially blown. <laughs> Contr- control, a controlled explosion in your mind. <laughs> yes, it is, literally. I mean, it's just, that's incredible. So you're right. So this ocean liner making making you see what the fuck you've done along you know along the way not not erasing the evidence Mm -hmm. letting the mistakes pile up and then showing them to you wow that is so true Mm. god this film is great it's a really good film yeah i mean i don't have anything else really to say about it me too it's so simple like there's really there's not loads in it and it's but it's very it's like an eternal circle isn't it it totally makes sense there's no loose ends no, it's a perfect Mobius strip. Yeah. And um, I, have to, I have to say more so than us, because I do love yeah. us. I think it's great. But there are a few like little unanswered questions with us. Like, how did she get up the down escalator? I know. I know. <laughs> like, I know. Or like by running just... really fast. I don't like. <laughs> I was, I was, always, it always bugged me as well. Oh, like... I'm glad. <laughs> and um... how does like the world's population fit under the Santa Cruz boardwalk? <laughs> <laughs> like... Yeah, where, where, and where did, how do they know to time their actions exactly with the people upstairs? Like, exactly. there's a lot of unanswered questions. <laughs> yeah. um, we need to get like Jordan Peele on the pod so that we can like, you know, fire away. That would be fun. Um, <laughs> but he doesn't answer questions anymore. If, if he thinks that he, he's very much like, do your own work, isn't he? Kind of yeah, he is. Yeah. He is. Oh, that's been really fun. Yeah. That's, I really enjoyed this episode. Next time it's going to be episode five. We're going to be talking about stage personas. Woo! Joaquin Phoenix. My twin, because we were born on the same day. Yeah. I'm still here. And Velvet Goldmine. I'm so excited to watch this. This is one of those films that I've been wanting to watch for a long time. Oh my God. You're going to love it. Mm-hmm. You are going to love it. Seriously. So thank you everybody for listening. Um, don't forget, if you're enjoying the series, consider donating to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ha- you can do so by going on our website, following the appropriate links. Uh, we always appreciate your donations. I think we have a couple of recurring donations. Carl Murta and Elisa Turner. Thank you so much for your support uh, and, and, and for sharing your thoughts with us on social media. We love hearing from you. It's really nice to hear from you guys. It's really fun. And yeah, thanks, everybody. I really enjoyed this, Sarah. Me too. It was a very good episode. Very good. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Kinda broke to see me, y'all. So all I got is fire. I got fire. Give me some brew, and I might just chill. But I'm the type that likes to light another joint, like Cypress Hill.